You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I chat with Devon Kennard about designing your game plan for financial success. This includes what financial success actually means, how it plays into having a happy life, whether net worth or cash flow is more important, what a money personality is, how the conversations around money have changed in professional sports, and a bunch more. Devon Kennard is an NFL player, entrepreneur, and real estate investor. He was also nominated for the prestigious Walter Payton Man of the Year Award in 2019. And now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Devon Kennard. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Devon Kennard. Devon, welcome back. Thanks for having me, man. I had a great time last time, so I'm glad to be back, man. Yeah, we last talked on episode REI152. So it's actually on our real estate show, but that was back in December. And I recommend people go back and listen to that episode. But for those people who haven't heard it yet, give us a quick rundown on your background and who you are. Yeah, so my name is Devon Kennard. I just finished my ninth year in the NFL. I'm like kind of in between to figuring out what's going to be next. I, I want to play one more year to hit 10 years in the NFL, but I'm also, my body's talking to me a little bit. I have a lot of ventures going on out off the field. So I'm in that in between phase of, you know, I'm still training and ready to go for my 10th year, but I'm also looking forward to what's next. Um, outside of that, I've been investing in real estate since my rookie season. I have a portfolio of properties, over 20 properties now personally, but I also invest heavily in syndications. I've invested in over 50 syndications and I've gotten really into the, the lending sector. I've been doing some hard money, short-term lending on my own and growing that business as well. So real estate is the game I like to kind of play in. Um, been doing it for the last nine and a half years at this point. And I'm super passionate about financial literacy and growing, which is why I you know, came out with my book that was released April 18th. It all adds up, designing your game plan for financial freedom. And you know, I, I feel like it's just so essential. And I thought it was cool coming from an athlete talking about finances, which it's kind of changing the narrative of what it used to be. Do you get anything in the NFL for staying for 10 years, like in the military, right? Or some other professions when you were, you know, decades ago, if you stayed a certain amount of time, you got certain things. Does that change in the NFL too? Your, your retirement accounts and your pensions go up every year. So I think it just keeps increasing, but there's, you know, it's just incremental year by year. Once you get over, once you're vested, they call it, it's four seasons then you get all your benefits in full. But how much those benefits are start to increase the more years you get in. So for me, the 10-year the mark just feels so whole. That's why it's like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping the right opportunity and the right call happens to where I can, I can hit that 10, year 10. But I'm also not kind of pressing for it. It has to be the right situation. In the NFL, so do they give you like a 401k? Yeah, it's almost like you are really silly not to contribute to the 401k because they match a large percent. Like it's not a hundred percent, but it's like they match like 60, 70% of our contribution. So it's, it's a large match every year. So it's free money. So, you know, sometimes guys are like, Oh, could I do something else with my money? I'm like, in certain cases, and you always hear like 401k, you know, don't, don't contribute. It doesn't make sense. As far as NFL players, when you got that much free money coming in, 
Like, you know, if we put in 30,000, they put in like 18 or something like that. Like you can't turn away that free money. So uh, 401k is, is a must. I feel, I feel like I'm pretty sure it's like the best 401k program in the country. I've never heard of a match that high. I've never heard of it. But the limit on a 401k is like 21,000, I believe, something like that, roughly in contributions. Yeah. So like for you guys, there's such high incomes. Are they like 20K? What, what is 20K really in a year, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's definitely that feeling, but it's still free money. Like, you know, once when you're factoring in the, the match and then that's money that's just going to sit for a long time. Like even if you're making hundreds of Patrick Mahomes and you're making hundreds of millions of dollars over your career, it's like, are you really going to turn down the extra 15, 16 grand that the NFL is going to match it with, you know, if they're, if they're giving it, you got to take it. So I, there haven't been many guys who like turned down the 401k, but you can't just invest solely in that. Cause like you said, there's limitations to how much you can contribute and, you know, to sustain the lifestyle some guys create for themselves. That's not going to cut it. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into your book. You mentioned it's called it all adds up and it's your approach to money and, and finances. You made the subtitle of the book, Designing Your Game Plan for Financial Success. And I think financial success can mean a lot of different things to different people. I mean, we just talked about 401ks. Some people contributing and maxing out their 401k is like a huge success. And guys in the NFL, that's not going to be necessarily a massive success. So like, what financial success means is, is totally different to different people. So how do you define financial success? And what role does financial success play into leading a happy and successful life as a whole? I think financial success is very much an individual decision and an individual realization. And we, in our country, we've gotten to the point where we kind of put everybody in one bucket and say, this is what it's supposed to look like. And what kills me about it is like that version of financial success, and we like to call it the American dream, isn't working for majority of people, but we still kind of inherently, like directly and indirectly believe into it, feed into it. And just kind of like, it's like herd mentality. Like this is what they've always done. This is what people in our country have always done. This is the way. So, you know, designing your financial game plan is like, be intentional about figuring out what that looks like for you and being open-minded to what's the best solution and way to reach the goals that you have for yourself. And I don't think people ask this question of themselves critically enough. And that's why you get stuck in the same system and people are just living lives that they don't even necessarily want or you know never even thought about because they're not being intentional. So for me, your financial game plan is being starts out with being intentional and recognizing what are the things that I value? What do I actually want? and not just following what society has always done. Knowing what you want is so important because then you work backwards to getting there. Because if you don't know, you're just going to endlessly work, endlessly save, endlessly invest. And you might blow past your goal and, and be putting so much time and effort into things that you don't need to do. You could actually be enjoying your time rather than, you know, because you hit your goal rather than, you know, that goalpost always moving. Exactly. And I think that's what's like really important because people have like goals like, oh, I want to retire by 60 or 70. But like, do they know what their TMI is? And TMI to me is your target monthly income. Like how much money do you need to live the lifestyle that you want? You know, reverse engineer what it's going to take to retire, what your life is supposed to look like. Like if you know you spend $10,000 a month, 
and you want to retire when you're 65, like, what does that look like? How much money do you need to have? What kind of investment? Um, but people just like assume, all right, I'm going to put this into the, into my retirement account. I got, you know, securities and all, all these different things that are going to come in and tap in down the line and it's going to work out. And it's like, no, really do the math. Like, you know, that you spend X amount of month, but that then you can, if you spend $10,000 a month, you know, that's $120,000 a year. You can easily reverse engineer when you're going to be able to, to retire and what that's going to look like for yourself. And I don't think people will kind of look at it that way. But once you identify, all right, this is what I want to be able to spend now and for the rest of my life, then you can start to invest and create a, a game plan, a financial game plan for yourself to achieve that. Yeah. Let's just stick with that $120,000 example. If that's what you want to earn per year and you need to back into that, if you want to use the typical... 4% rule, like which is very commonly accepted as a, a safe way to withdraw from your investments, you need $3 million in the bank. I mean, that's what you're going for, right? That's, right. you know, if you're not doing real estate, but if you're just going to use equities to withdraw from, you need to get to $3 million. I just did the math on my calculator. Like it's just math, right? And then right. you can, and if you hit that number, there's no point in, in busting your butt past 3 million if you've already hit, hit your goals. Right. But knowing that 3 million, so then you can look at, well, what is my job paying now? And is that realistic? And at what point in my life is that realistic? And what saving rate do I need to be saving? How much money do I need to put away to hit that? And then critically think of how can I hit it sooner? Like who says that you got to wait till you're 65 or who says that you can't invest in things that's speeding that up for you? If your number is 10,000 and you've got all these you know, stocks and portfolio and stuff, but if you can start to offset that with some real estate and some passive income and get to $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, you know, so on a month in real estate, that's offsetting what you need from the stocks and you blend in a portfolio for yourself. And it's like soon afterwards, you might realize you can hit those goals in you know, half the time by your 45 instead of 65 or, or whatever. But I don't think people think about it that way and really structure their life around what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what you know. my book is all about. It's kind of debunking what society has told us and giving people a different, fresh lens of how to look at your finances, how to look at your goals and what you're trying to accomplish in your life and being very intentional. And so let's say you, your goal is 10,000 a month in income. If, like you said, if you can get to 3,000 from real estate, that essentially, you know, 3,000 is 30%. We'll use round numbers, essentially a third of 10,000. So now instead of needing 3 million, you only need like two thirds of that. So you only need to save 2 million. So you just cut off a million dollars that you need to save. And so now the calculation is, okay, can I buy rental properties for less than a million dollars that will generate $3,000 in cash flow? And if you can, then you're being more efficient with your capital. And what's beautiful about that and adding, you know, specifically real estate is, now you're talking about appreciating assets and there's other benefits to real estate. So where even if you only had a million dollars to invest or to get to that point where you're generating that $3,000 a month, now a few years later, those values have gone up. You can leverage that into more properties, which ends up more cash flow, and you start to create a snowball effect in your life. And I think that's like really important concept for people to kind of conceptualize but the real like goal, and even before you get to that point, is like really looking at your TMI, knowing, all right, I want ten thousand dollars a month, and asking yourself, what's my savings rate? Like I, I like to think about things as like there's the spread that you have in your life. You want to earn as much as you possibly can and keep spending relatively down. And the spread in between the two 
is what gives you the ability to invest and to grow your retirement account, to grow investments, to do things with it. And a large issue in a lot of people's lives is, you know, their earning potential is here or what they're earning is here and what they're spending is here. And when the spread is small, you're putting yourself in a position for failure because if life comes at you and punches you in the mouth, the parent dies and you have, have to take over their bills. If car breaks down, now you're talking about things that have a huge impact and your spread isn't, isn't wide enough to sustain some of those issues. So, you know, so many people kind of don't recognize that the spread is what allows you to invest. And it doesn't matter your investment vehicle. We're talking a lot of real estate. I love real estate, but whether it's stock market, venture capital, private, whatever it is you're doing, it all starts with the spread. And I get frustrated how much people focus on the decreased spending portion of it and not the maximizing your earning potential. We live in a point in society, and I talk a lot about in my book where it's like there's so much opportunity to increase your earning potential. And I think another issue I have with just people and and how we kind of operate right now is complacency and not trying to push the envelope of developing skills and thinking outside of the box of ways you can increase your earning potential. Yeah, I mean, we see it with professional athletes. They'll earn millions and millions and millions of dollars, but they spend the same amount or their spread that, that you're talking about is not there. So they're not getting any wealthier over time. But then there's also stories. There's actually a story, a very popular story about this guy in Vermont who lived a very, very modest life. Nobody thought he had money. And then when he died, he donated millions and millions and millions of dollars to his local town and built all these buildings when he passed. And people were shocked. But it's this difference in spread, right? It, it doesn't really, you know, I think increasing your income can help with that for sure. I 100% agree. And we're going to talk about that. But it's also, like you said, it's the spread. It's not just necessarily how much you make because you can make millions and millions of dollars and still not build any wealth. I see it all the time. Like being a professional athlete, you see guys just spending way too much money and their lifestyle looks different because their earning is higher, but they're spending so high that, like you said, they don't have a spread and they're putting themselves in a position that if things start to go wrong or money starts to dry up, it could get really ugly. Are you starting to see that evolve over time? Like, have you, you know, you, like you said, you're coming into year 10 in the league. When you first entered the league, were guys thinking about money one way versus how they are today? Like, is it getting better, worse, changing? Is it kind of more or less the same? I would say I'm extremely happy in the direction that pro athletes in general are headed. What the conversations in a locker room today versus almost 10 years ago when I first entered is world of difference. You know, people weren't really talking about investments. And when they were, it was pretty much just regular stocks and bonds and just financial advisors and stuff. There's plenty more people getting involved in other sectors of investing in the sports world. And what I'm proud of is it's not just the superstars, you know, like it's easy to see Patrick Mahomes bought the Kansas City soccer team or, you know, whatever that was. Or I think he has some stake in the Royals. Like it's always been the case that the big names like are getting stake in, you know, different companies and different businesses. But I, what I'm most proud of is those aren't the guys that need it the most. It's the guys who aren't making the hundreds of millions of dollars who you might make a good living, but that good living has to sustain you for the rest of your life. And even that caliber of player in the NFL, NBA, et cetera, I think they are understanding and thinking about investing much better than, than they were previously. But a huge issue that we have in the sports realm is financial advisors really only teach about stocks and bonds. 
And when you're an athlete and you're an accredited investor and you have so many different opportunities and, and things you may be able to invest in that can really impact your wealth, like real estate, like private equity, like owning businesses, venture capital, et cetera. And you have financial advisors that just want to put you in mutual funds with high fees and it, it's risk. I think there's a real problem with that. And I think that's the next thing that I really hope improves because you have guys interested in these different things, but they're having to trust random people sliding into their DMs or reaching out to them on LinkedIn. And these players don't know how to underwrite opportunities and deals and you know are getting sold pipe dreams, but they wanting to get equity in this company or to invest in this fund. And, you know, I think that might be the next issue is guys getting into bad deals because the desire and the appetite for things outside of just creating a stock portfolio has grown immensely, but there's no real solution right now for like, how do you know if you're getting into a good deal? What are you looking for? And I I think that's a next thing that needs to change. Yeah. I mean, the financial advisors are smooth talkers. And if you don't know any better, which most professional athletes don't know like what they're necessarily what the financial advisors are talking about, if they talk well and they, it all seems good and they don't know any better that they're paying a 1% or 2% you know, annual fee and they don't know how much that can really impact the long-term growth of their investments. And so they get kind of swindled into these things that aren't necessarily the best for them. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not a huge, you know, stock market investor myself. You know, most of my stuff is in real estate, but like the more I've researched and studied, like I'm building out my own ETF portfolio because I'm like paying somebody 1% to do mutual funds and buy individual stocks and play this whole game when I can do it on my own, but I'm not a stock picker. I don't want to just be picking and getting in and out of stocks. So I'm like, you know, I just started investing in, in ETFs on the side on my own. And like, it surprised me how easy that is to do. You can just Google the top 10 ETFs and, you know, try to pick best ones that have, you know, kind of different buckets of type of investments. And they explain what each one kind of invests in and you make sure they're not kind of exactly the same and you buy them and that's, that's it. And I'm like, uh, in, in the sports world and being around a lot of people who are making a good amount of money, I'm like, guys are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for someone to build a stock portfolio that typically isn't performing better than the ETFs can, which are low cost and you can handle on your own. And there's you know, no extra fee attached to it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com 
slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I guess it's, it's just the ignorance there. They just don't yeah. know what they don't know. I think not only with athletes, but just in general, that notion of like finances, like people need to realize that money matters. Finances matter. Like the, the whole notion, like people just like, I'm going to work and I make what I make. Like it's not living life intentionally, in my opinion, because your financial well-being greatly impacts your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, like every other important aspect of your life, your financial um, well-being severely impacts. And a great example I have is like, I've I had grandparents and, and things and family members in it. And I think people in your audience can relate like, oh, somebody's sick in the family and, and your grandma doesn't want to go to the doctor because she doesn't want to deal with that doctor bill. Like, so that she's holding off on going to the doctor until it gets really bad or, you know, until she can't even get out of bed. Like, and it's like things like that can save her life, but she doesn't want to go because she's thinking about, oh, I like, they just going to charge me X amount. I don't want to stay the night at the hospital. You know, those type of things. When it boils down to that decision, that's really about finance. She's thinking about what that might cost to go to the doctor. And I feel awful, but I don't want to go because it's probably going to be expensive. And like, that's just one example of how like our financial well-being affects so many different aspects of our life that people don't realize. So I don't care if you are as interested in real estate or financial literacy as I am to just ignore it like it isn't a pivotal point part in your life and just to kind of go with the flow and let it happen and not track spending and not look at how much you're you're making and you know does that even fit you, fit the life like if you make a $60,000 a year and and you have dreams of a $100,000 a dream lifestyle 
It's that the math ain't math. Something needs to change. And people, there's people out there living that way and, and they're just not changing it and they're miserable and it's affecting their lifestyle. But it's like, hey, intentionally think about, is that a career change? Is that adding skills to what you're able to do so you can you know, ask for a raise? Is that you know, decreasing spending? Like, what does it look like for you? But those are the critical questions that you have to ask yourself. What's crazy about finances to me and in the way that other people approach it is that money is one of the very few things in life that never go away. So there are some things in life that if you just like put it off long enough or you forget about it or whatever, it'll eventually go away. Like it, it just right. will eventually fade away. Your health, like working out, eating right, et cetera, and your finances are just two things that will just never go away. It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are, money is going to be a pivotal role. It's not something you could just bury away for 50 years and forget about it. And then like someday it'll just magically like fix itself. It's something that like is going to be there no matter what. And so to your point, like you don't have to be as passionate about finances and money and investing like you and me. You have to still consider it. Like you have to at least pay attention to it because it's not going away no matter what. Um, I've mentioned this story and this analogy in my book, and it's like, even if you're a backpacker who just wants to live life on the road and, and travel the rest of you know your life all over the country, all over the world, you know what I mean? And you just got a backpack. You don't care about material things that much. You don't need any, you know, like I've, I've met people like that before, right? I'm like, you mean to tell me having your financial life in order wouldn't enhance that experience for you? Like, you know, instead of staying in, in hostels and figuring out how I'm going to get from here to there, what if you had income coming in and it wouldn't necessarily need to be a ton because the lifestyle you live maybe doesn't require a ton, but you mean to tell me a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars, you know, is coming in a month to buy your flight so you can get a regular flight and you're not scrapping and taking on any job you can in each city. Like, so it's like even that person who they might identify as someone who doesn't care about finances. Like you can't tell me that it wouldn't enhance what you're trying to do in your life. And once you realize that and accept that reality, it is like your physical health, your mental health, all these things where you got to address it and have a plan for it. And if not having a plan, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. So not having a plan doesn't mean you don't have a plan. You just don't know your plan. You're just throwing it up, hoping it works out, panicking when things go wrong because you don't have a solution for it. And that affects your mental and emotional well-being in itself. So, you know, really recognizing that and being like, all right, I need to pay enough attention to this to where I make sure I have a plan that fits what I want. I've seen the exact same thing. I've had some friends that they're like, hey, you focus on money too much, blah, blah, blah. And they're right. I mean, I love stuff. So like, yeah, I do focus on it more than the average person, but they're like, no, I don't care about money. I don't need nice cars. I don't need any of this. I just want to help animals and, you know, do work at a shelter or have a shelter someday for dogs or whatever. This is just an example I've come across. And I'm like, well, if you want to open a shelter someday, like you need money to do that. Like, how how, how are you going to do that? You know what I mean? Like anything you want to do, even if it's to help people, like you need money to do that. You know I mean? Yeah, you, yes. can, you can donate your time. But if you really want to make a big impact, you need money to do so. So like you just have to focus on it. It's, it's just one of these things that doesn't go away no matter what. And we're talking about the spending and like how much money you make versus what you're spending and all that. And one great thing that I've kind of realized and I get frustrated with is you have the financial gurus out there that are saying like, cut back on the latte and don't cut off Netflix and cable and internet, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, not saying those things can't help your financial life. They absolutely can. Cutting back your spending, that is 
you know, can be great in that way. But there's fixed expenses and there's variable expenses. And fixed expenses are the things that could really change and impact your life. And there's people out here trying to cut back on the variable expenses when they need to be focused on the fixed expenses. And the fixed expenses are the house you live in. So whether you're renting or owning, that's most likely one of, if not your biggest expense for the average person, where they're living and the mortgage they pay or the rent they pay is their biggest expense every month. That is a decision you need to be really mauling over. The car that you drive, the car that you drive as far as what it costs, but also insurance, the maintenance that comes with it. The car you decide to drive really impacts your financial life. You want to be cool and you want the new Jeep Grand Cherokee instead of getting one 10 years older or getting a Toyota Camry. Your insurance is going to cost more. The maintenance on that thing is going to cost more. And the actual vehicle is going to cost more. Education. You have kids going to college and getting into an immense amount of debt. And I went to the University of Southern California and it was when I was there almost $70,000 a year. Even if you go and get a six-figure, $152,000 a year job because you went to USC afterwards, if you had to get in a ton of debt to get there, then that's the conversation we were having earlier. Somebody with $80,000 with no debt is living a much better life and has a way better spread than somebody making $200,000 with a hundred and something thousand dollars debt. So your education and your debt in general, um, as far as credit cards and things like that, that bad debt, that is a huge thing. And then your health, you know, what you're paying for insurance, what you, you know, all those are the things that you need to be trying to mitigate and limit your, your spending. If you can go and find an apartment for $2,000 instead of 2,500, 5,000 times 12, that's real money. You know, that $500 the spread. So, and when you start to think about that and me, like, you know, and especially in African-American culture, fashion's a thing and people like Jordans and, and shoes and stuff. And I'm like, you, it may be smart to cut back and not get the new pair of Jordans every time they drop. But if you control your fixed expenses, you might be able to maybe not every drop, but every other drop still get the Jordans you like, because that is a variable expense that you could buy and pick and choose when to buy. But you just cut your you just cut five hundred dollars a month off in your you know rent that you're paying. So a hundred dollar pair of shoes every few months isn't that big of a deal. So fixing people's mindset to where it's like that seven dollar latte isn't going to kill you as much as the two hundred extra dollar payment in your car bill or the insurance you're paying. So. Getting people to realize, let's attack fixed expenses first and really be aggressive and acknowledge that. And then let's look at very Are you familiar with Ramit Sethi? Uh, he has the Netflix and- He just had and, the Netflix uh, show, yeah. Series and, and I follow him on social media now. Yeah, yeah. I've just gotten kind of introduced to him, but I, I haven't watched a ton of his stuff. So he talks about this and I love his financial philosophy and I don't agree with everything he says, but I do love one concept. And it's like what you just talked about is he says that you need to be asking the $30,000 questions rather than the $3 question. So rather than focusing on the $3 latte, focus on the $30,000 car or student loans or housing or whatever, you know, these big questions. And he also says, that's kind of like one part of it. And the second part is you need to cut like ferociously on expenses that you don't care about and then spend lavishly on the things you do. So let's take an example. Like if you know somebody that loves buying Jordans every time they drop, 
that's fine. Spend as much money on that as you want, but you need to cut that somewhere else that you don't care about. Like if you care about shoes, but you don't care about, you know, having a fancy car, then don't get a fancy car just because other people have fancy cars. If you don't care about that, don't spend the money there. If you don't care about, you know, exactly. food, like reduce your grocery bills so you can spend it on like what you really want. Like for me, like I eat healthy, but I don't really care about going out to eat. Like I never go out to eat. So I save a ton of money. I don't drink alcohol. So I save a ton of money there. Like I don't go to bars. So I save a ton of money there. I cut ruthlessly there. I race motocross. I spend a ton of money on dirt bikes, motocross, that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, net net spending the same or even less, but it's just really allocating or how you spend that money. And I think that's and, really and you're important. getting more fulfilled. I, Way I, more. I know he, Way he's more. Uh, said that, but I've always said that it's like, you need to, you shouldn't have more than one or two vices and like, you, you got to know what your things are. So for me, I like to travel and I like to eat well. So I'm going to, I like going to, to nice restaurants, getting a good meal. I like to travel. I like experiences. Like I get fulfilled even on my book tour recently, you know, for my book, like going to different cities, meeting new people, trying new restaurants. That really fulfills me. I could care less about having chains, a bunch of different chains on and, you know, several different cars. And the, so I don't I, like I buy, I have one nice car that was, was my dream car. And I don't, I'm like, I can only drive one car at a time. I'm never going to have a third car in my house because it's unnecessary. And I don't buy extra jewelry. Like I, that's, that's not, so I've, I've chosen, you know, that's where I'm going to spend the extra money on. But then, like you said, cut ferociously on, on everything else. But what I found where people really struggle is when they have more than one or two vices. You like, and football wise, I always tell guys, you can't be a jewelry guy, a travel guy, a club guy, a weed guy, you know, the, like lavish house guy, the car guy. Like when you want to look popping in every category, that's when, you know, you're really susceptible uh, financially and you're putting yourself in a, in a really bad hole. So you got to decide. You really do got to be intentional about what do I value most? And, you know, like you said, spend freely there and cut back else. It's, it's pretty cool hearing like how different people word it because I've always kind of put that in, in like the, vi- the vices world. But hearing like spend ver- ferociously on what you want and cut back everything else, that's, that's cool too. It's hard because it, let's say your thing isn't, you don't care about the house you live in, but like you want to spend on travel. It's hard because people compare you to themselves or, or themselves to others based on your house, not your travel. Like, People aren't going to be like, oh, he went on, you know, he went to Florida, he went to here, he went to wherever, he went to Europe. Like they don't really compare experiences like they do houses. They could be like, oh, he lives in that neighborhood with not a very nice house, but, and I live in like a super nice house. So like I'm doing better than that person. So it's hard to cut back on these things that you might not care about because of this idea of like keeping up with the Joneses. I think a good analogy, like practicality with that, like when it comes to houses, is like I wanted a really nice home, but that I'm proud of that I can live in for a long time. But the area that I chose to live in, like I can, I'm in Arizona. I can be in Paradise Valley in Scottsdale in the thick of like where it's popular and the big money is. The home that I'm living in now would have cost probably three times as much in that area. I live about 30 minutes away in the, in the suburbs uh, in a town that I grew up in. I have a nice home, you know, like everything that, that I ever dreamed of, but where I decided to, to live and and not being right in the mix of where its values are going up. I'm on a bigger lot. This same lot and house would have cost literally three to four times as much. So for me, that's where it's like, okay, I still got a nice home, but y'all got to come out, out the way a little bit to my spot because I chose not to live there because 
that I to having a three, four, five, six million dollar home, I didn't value the same. I want a nice home, but it doesn't need to be that. And that's like those are the kind of decisions that you know people should make. I don't value that. Some people might be like, I want to be right in the mix, and I want my kids to go to you know Saguaro High School, which is in, in Scottsdale. That's like and. So they might spend the extra money on that home instead. But that was my decision in mind. It's like, you know what? I'm going to do this instead of that. You mentioned you went to USC. So I want to go back. Before you went to USC, you were playing high school football and you had you had Alabama head coach Nick Saban watching you. You had Pete Carroll, Charlie Weiss. This was all watching you during your senior year. And then you had an MRI that disclosed you tore your ACL in a game. How did this moment in your football career, your early football career, impact how you think about money in your later years like you do today? And did it make you more conscious of your spending habits while you were in the NFL because you knew things like that could happen and essentially your career could end at any moment with a freak injury? Yeah, it, it was a big like wake up moment to where like you can go from being the guy to a guy in a heartbeat. And it was my first taste of that. Like I was always a hard worker, but my upbringing, I had a dad who played professional sports. I was always good. I did, did school well. Like I was keeping it solid. I was like, you know, the popular kid, good at sports, did good in school. Like I, I never gotten punched in the mouth. Like, and that was my big, like knockout, the like heavyweight fight. Mike Tyson knocks me down. I'm at the height of heights. And then something like that happens and it changed my perspective completely. Number one, it made me realize that I got to like football what I do, but it's not who I am. And I connected my identity to the game of football way too much. And I, it made me realize that football is never going to love me as much as I love it. And uh, it started making me ask myself a question of like, if football doesn't work out, what kind of life do I want? And I realized, and I think a lot of young people need to think about this, is like, I want to live a good life with or without football. And I plan, football was always an avenue that I wanted to help me get there. But it made me act like realize like if it's not football, I still want it. And maybe you decide that like if I can make it to the NFL, I'm gonna live this life. If I don't, I'm okay with this life. Then all right, you can you can live your life accordingly. But I, it was a complete mind shift mind shift for me because it's like I realized I wanted to live a good life. I wanted to be able to do what I want when I wanted, how I wanted, where I wanted, with who I wanted, whether football was a piece of it or not. And if I'm making that decision of that's what I want my life to look like, then I got to move differently. I got to think differently because I got to make sure I'm getting there no matter what. And, you know, that realization ultimately made me think about finances a lot differently. Once I got in college, leveraging my education, that's why I ended up getting my undergrad and master's degree while I was at at school because my mindset was like, I'm going to school for free. I mentioned it was like $70,000 a year. I'm going to finesse them into giving me two degrees by finishing my undergrad early and starting my master's and make them pay for that too. So like that, it just really enhanced how I thought and, and it put me in position to be financially stable. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience 
and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. If you hadn't made it to the league, what would you have done? Any idea what you would have gone into for a career? I think I probably, the broadcast route would have it had strong interest with me. And I think I, like, I wouldn't be surprised if I would have wound up in real estate anyways, especially with my college experience. Like, so you say if football didn't work out, I, one of my mentors, and I mentioned it in my book, the, one of the first people that changed my life football wise, because even when I was in college, it didn't look like the NFL was going to happen to me for most of my career. So it was my last year before the season started. And I sat down with the, with the real estate investor I, and I was like getting business cards. I was trying to figure it out because I realized like, all right, now this is four years later after my ACL, my college career didn't go as I, as I wanted. I got one more year to ball out. And, but as of today, it doesn't look like the NFL is happening to me or it's not going to look that great. So I was like, all right, what is going to look like? I'm meeting a ton of professionals, getting business cards, making relationships. And there was one meeting that completely changed my life. And this guy was a teacher turned police officer. So I, you know, I wasn't being too nosy and pocket watching. I don't know exactly how much he made, but police officer money ain't anything crazy. My guess has always been probably around $50,000. I don't know, give or take in that ballpark. But he bought a property, him and his wife, they renovated it, house packed it for all the real estate pros out there, bought another one, kept it, did that a couple of times. Fast forward to when I met him and he owned thousands of units in Los Angeles. 
and had his own property management firm where he managed all his stuff, but managed uh, other people's stuff too. So I managed over 6,000. And I was like, this dude did that off of a police officer's salary. If he could do that, what can I do with even a signing bonus from the NFL? You know, a big signing bonus or like, you know, even if I didn't even make it to the NFL, it's like, I think I could go get a job for more than $50,000. So even if I got to get it out of the mud and do it his way, if he could do it, I could do it. So that, that was like the flip that was like, all right, real estate is going to be my game because this dude like flew. I don't, I couldn't, re- I can't remember if he owned a private uh, jet or just always flew private, but was like, just telling me his life and, and you know, his passions. And I'm like, you were able to do that off of a police officer's salary. That's what I'm doing. Um, and you know, that, that kind of changed it. So I think ultimately it would have came down to real estate regardless, but I did have strong interest in the broadcasting world too. I had a similar experience where it wasn't one individual person for me. It was, I thought I was going to make my money one way. I thought you had to be like really rich to get into real estate. I felt like I was pretty well educated in finance and investing, but I still thought you had to be rich to invest in real estate. So I said, okay, I'll make my money in my career or stock investing, and then I'll take all that money and I'll put it into real estate once I get there. And then I was in college and I happened to stumble on to bigger pockets. And on bigger pockets, I saw thousands and thousands of people that were doing what I wanted to do and were reaching the goals that I wanted to reach. And I was like, these people are no different than me. Like they didn't start anywhere different than me. Like if they could do it, I could do it. And then ultimately that's kind of helped me get over those limiting beliefs that I had and helped me get to where I am today. So it's not one specific person like your story, is it? you know, but it's just a collective group of people that I saw doing essentially what I wanted to do and showed me like, Hey, they can do it. I can do it. I think that's a really important point because my next evolution, similar to yours, is I dived into bigger pockets and then I started hearing more stories. Now, not everybody like turned into what he did, but like just having success. And I'm like, they're, they're able to do it. Why can't I? So it's, it's that same notion. And actually, I think building relationships and leveraging the network you have is such an important aspect. And that's for everyone. Obviously, real estate based, um, you know, that's our game, but really in life in general and in finances, like you can. You can 10x your life in every aspect by the relationships you start to build. But the, but I hate the whole your network is your net worth thing because I found you have to be ready and prepared. And so when you're ready and prepared and then you have a good network, that's where it can really impact your network. But you can go shake hands with Bill Gates today. And if you don't have anything to offer, if you don't have any related, then, then what's it going to do? So, you know, interesting enough, I started to realize once I got in the NFL, I have some capital. So people are going to listen to me now. And then I started to leverage. I'm, I'm reading a lot of books on real estate. I'm watching a lot of YouTube videos. I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. I understand the game. I can talk cap rate. I can talk cash on cash return. I can talk equity and, and 1031 exchange. And I have some capital. I started to lean into that. So I've actually bought in, in several markets now based on relationships that I've built through books I read and reached out to people, podcasts I've heard and reached out to them, et cetera. But I utilize the fact, wait, hey, I have some knowledge now because I understand it and some capital. So let me let me go and, and lean into this. And it turned into a immense amount of opportunity. And that's how I was able to invest and build such a large portfolio of syndications and my own properties just by even while I'm playing in the NFL, but it's been utilizing relationships. We talked a bit about what you would do if you hadn't made it to the NFL, but you did. 
And when you were a rookie, you have this story where you shipped an old car to New York because you didn't want to buy a new one until you knew your football career was moving forward. You briefly mentioned this earlier. And that was despite being pressured by to buy a nicer car by your teammates and just other guys across the league. And what I think is interesting is that even at the level you were at, you know, people think once they make a lot of money, they're like, okay, I won't have this dynamic of like keeping up with the Joneses. But even at your level, that was still prevalent. So I want you to first off, tell us that story a little bit. And then also, how did you battle keeping up with the Joneses? And how did you just stick to what you were focused on? I really bought into the notion of delayed gratification. So I was never telling myself I couldn't have those things. I was just telling myself, like, let me do it differently. Get it later. Get it later. You know, for as long as I can remember, I've had two dream cars, an autobiography Range Rover and a Mercedes S550. Now it's the S63 AMG version. They they haven't came out with a new one in a while. Those are but essentially an S550 Mercedes and and a Range Rover have always been two of my dream cars. I was like, I still want those cars one day. But I don't need to buy it right now because I don't know how long I'm going to play. So it's like, I'm not telling myself I can never buy one of those cars. I'm telling myself I need to wait. And then I got infatuated with the concept of like everyone in the league, they make it to the league and they start buying these lavish things. And I'm like, I'm going to add one step that I think can completely change my life. I'm going to make it to the league and make that earned income and turn it into investments that give me passive income. And then with that passive income, go buy whatever the heck I want. So that coupled with the the delayed gratification concept is like, all right, I don't know how long I'm going to play. Let me save as much money as I can so I can make sure I'm buying things that are going to be able to sustain my lifestyle. Once I do that and I have these assets, then I can think about, oh, let let me buy that Range Rover. Let me buy that Mercedes one day. But push it down the road and let an asset buy instead of my earned income. And I started to realize... It's easy to just flex with football money. But the real flex to me was buying assets with my football money and then buying whatever I wanted with the the excess capital from that. So that concept really kind of stuck with me. And I kind of mentioned, I didn't know how long I was going to play. When I got drafted by the New York Giants, it was talks that, oh, he's he's a fifth round draft pick. He's going to play a couple of years and fizzle out. And I was like, if that is the case, I want to be able to take whatever I make in the league and 10 exit. So I'm not going to buy a car right now, which is going to deplete that immensely. If I only have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank and I'm spending a hundred thousand dollars on a car, I was like, I, I can't do that. So on a rookie contract, which I was a fifth round draft pick, I remember one big notion after my third year in the NFL that I was super proud of that none of my teammates could believe is I had a million in the bank after three years. And that's when salaries weren't what they are now. And I was a fifth round draft pick. So I didn't have a big signing bonus and people didn't believe it. Cause it was like, you've only made X amount and you have a million dollars saved already. Like, and you can see $1 million. And I was like, yeah. And then that obviously compounded and took off. Cause I made more in my fourth year. And then I signed new deals after that. But you know, many people spend majority of it and it takes them to get to their fifth year typically for them to hit that mile, that million dollar number, especially if you're a later round pick. If you're a first rounder, you signed millions already. But my signing bonus was only $107,000. And you got to cut that in half. So when I say I've hit a million dollars in three years, that's what I mean. You know, a salary of five hundred dollars or $600,000, cut that in half, that's 200 and something. Like, got to times that by three. So the signing bonus, like, I was, I was being pretty, pretty frugal those first three years to hit a million dollars in the bank. 
And that's why a lot of my teammates couldn't believe it. But that kind of took off for me because then when I started to make more money, I was so much further ahead than my counterparts. When you say you have to cut it in half, is that because of taxes, agents fees and other stuff like that? Yeah. So um, for your audience out there, if you guys haven't gone to like my Instagram page and stuff, I talk a lot about this on there, but you literally got to cut everything in half. We're taxing the highest tax bracket. I did the numbers in Arizona and it's like tax wise, I would expect 44 to 45% gone automatically. And then we pay our agents 3% of gross revenue. So 3% of the contract. So now we're at 47 and that's not including all the extra little taxes. Like that's just state and federal. And then you got to think if you're in a city like New York or, or something like that, the taxes are worse. So those numbers are up higher even more. So when it's all said and done, it's 50% plus that's gone. And you see these contracts online and, and most of that money is not guaranteed in the NFL. So uh, I've made this analogy before too, but a two-year $10 million deal that you see come across your screen in the NFL is really like a one-year $6 million deal. And people write me off when I say that. $6 million is still a ton, but now you got to cut that in half. So when you see somebody sign a two-year $10 million deal, you got to realize that's really ultimately looks like one year, 3.2 million. Like 3.2 million is a lot of money, but it's a far cry away from 10 million. So, you know, when you start to realize that and seeing guys not recognize that kind of upfront and be surprised when it's like they, they don't get the second year of their deal and they thought they had another five, six million dollars coming and they don't get it or they're surprised by taxes, et cetera. Like it's, it's a humbling experience for sure. It's interesting because we talked earlier, I asked you about how the talks in the league and, and in the locker room have changed from when you started to now. An interesting example of what, what you just mentioned is that Tyreek Hill just last year, or maybe it was two years ago, but recently he left the Chiefs and he was looking to see where he was going to go. I believe it was the Jets in New York was like a very possible landing spot. He ended up in Miami because of tax. Like he literally came out and said, like, I'm not paying New York taxes. Like that's just going to, it's just crazy. He's like, I went to Florida. I went to Miami because the taxes are like way lower here. I'm going to make like, I'm just going to make way more money, even if the contracts are the same because of taxes. And so it's interesting because guys, like we talked about, they're starting to think about this differently and they're starting to realize how this is going to impact them. Absolutely. And I feel like you, you have to, and this whole notion of like guys being loyal to organizations and to the NFL, I don't know if you saw what's going on with like the PGA and live, but I tweeted about this yesterday. I feel awful for the guys who like tried to do the noble thing. I'm going to stay loyal to PGA. This is what I know. This is, you know, this, the staple for golf in our, in our country, in the world, really. And PGA was, you know, talking down and bad about live. And now they're partnering and just bought out. Like, People got to realize sports are is a business and corporate like, careers are like this too. That's the thing yeah. people need to realize. It's not just athletes. Yeah. Like these owners, the, the commissioner of the NFL, Roger, Goodell, like what they care about is the bottom line. And like when you get caught up and committed to an organization or a team or doing stuff like there's some golf guys who just missed out on generational money less than a year ago being loyal to the PGA because PGA said they're not messing with Liv and now they bought them and they're not going to get, that money's gone. Like, oh, oh, if they're good enough players, they'll still get paid a lot of money. I'm not saying that, but like what that offer was, today's price is not yesterday's price. They missed out on money no matter what way you can cut it. And, you know, ultimately PGA did what they felt was the right move financially for them. Yeah. Some of those Liv contracts they were given out were insane. 
it's nuts. And it's like, now they're going to be justified and those guys are going to get that money and they still get to be a part of PGA. But they were, I don't know if you remember, guys who were de- deciding to do that were getting slammed. Oh yeah, big time, big right. time. Like the PGA was, like I'm not a huge golf guy, but like they were they were saying some like really nasty and negative things, if I remember correctly, about the guys that were yeah, going to live. no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm not that big of a golf guy too, but I was just following the the main stories. And it's, I could, when I saw that, I was like, I remember PGA was just talking bad on them to think like less than a year ago. Yeah, it's and, crazy. And now, and now we're here. It's crazy. So to think that, that, you know, money in, in the business of sports, like that's where it's going. And it's the same thing with gambling and, and, you know, all of that as well. People need to realize too is, and I think people are becoming more conscious of this, but like corporate jobs are the same way. Corporate companies are the same way. Like, there's a saying, and I, and I don't know if this, if I believe this is a hundred percent true, but they say like, you know, if you pass away, that company has your job posting listed before your funeral even happens. Like they're already looking for your replacement so fast, you know, like so quick. And you know, you just, this is why you got to take care of your financial future well, because like, these companies aren't looking out for you. So this is stuff I mentioned in my book, but I, I this is the conclusion and why I decided to write my book. Cause I was trying to figure out like the difference between me and somebody who has a nine to five job that pays well is I know I have to retire best case scenario in my thirties. I'm 31 right now. I just told you this next year is if he, even if I play, I'm retiring most likely at 32 or 33 in the next year or two. Done. I've known that. And that's best case scenario. I could have, it could have happened way earlier than this. I'm the anomaly because the average NFL career is less than four years. So with knowing that, I felt like it made me think about what life outside of football is going to be, how I'm going to live. And that's why I started talking about TMI, fixed expenses versus variable expenses, uh, getting to my target number, generating enough revenue. But everyday people out there and all your listeners, they don't have to necessarily think about this or they choose not to because they think they're safe in their job. I'm going to do this for the next 34. I'm in the operations industry. If it's not this company, it's another company. Somebody like and so they just, they stick to the status quo of the American dream, work somewhere, work in an industry or at that specific job for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, retire, get a gold watch, your retirement account, et cetera. And I challenge every listener out there to realize the time we're living in. Things are changing drastically. There are people out there who are going to lose their job because of AI and and where technology and, and things are just going. So there's a couple of things you should do with that information. One, constantly adding skills and growing as a person. If you're in a, in a nine to five job and you've been working for it for the last few years and you're just riding the wave and think you're good, you need to be improving your skill set because that increases your revenue potential and your desire to keep your job. That is essential. I had the same thing in the NFL. I'm like, there's always a new guy trying to get in. How am I going to add to my skill set to where I show that I'm still valuable? You cannot stay the same with where the world is going and think you're going to have a job in 10 years. From you. you have to keep going. Number two, how do you not see what's going on in society right now and have the same mindset as an athlete should or that I do in preparing for life without your job, creating other revenue streams that offset? Like in my goal is to always completely replace my income from the NFL. But even if it's like your life expenses, your car note, your house, your fixed expenses, let's call them that again. What if you can just replace those with passive income, 
specifically, and I know you'll agree, doing it through real estate, buying a portfolio of properties and you get to $3,000 and that covers your mortgage. Now, your next goal is to get to 4,000. So you pay your car note and your insurance too. Like, you know what I mean? And, and then stack up that way to where if and when that day comes where you get laid off, you're not just hopping into whatever job you can and, and scrambling. You're going to look for the best opportunity and you can take your time because you have enough money coming in to, to pay your main bills, to pay your fixed expenses. I think that's where the world is going now. I think that's how people need to think. That's what my book is all about. And like, I'm forced to think that way because I'm, I'm an athlete, but I firmly believe that this is how everyone needs to operate in the mindset that they need to have. Like, how can I offset income so I'm not dependent on this job and you're taking responsibility for your life and for your household instead of giving that power to your boss who may fire you one day or may decide to buy live, live golf because it's going to make them more money. Like business is business. What you're seeing in the NFL could happen at your job. What you're seeing the PGA just do like business can be savage and you don't know where you're always going to stand and taking responsibility of your household by thinking of a plan you have in place that removes your job from the picture. I talk about this actually in my book as well. And I say, you need to set yourself up so that you can go on offense with your money rather than being on defense. Most people, if they lose their source of income, they're stuck. They're on defense. They have to play defense. Like how they have to take the first opportunity they can to get that money back because they have these bills they have to pay, et cetera. Versus I think people need to put themselves in a position where they can go on offense. And what I mean by that is take advantage of these opportunities that come up. Like even if it's not negative, like let's say you don't get like fired from your job or laid off or whatever, but you have an opportunity where you can join another company and you're going to make less money in the short term, but in the long term, you might make way more money. But if you're, if you're living like right at your means and you can't take a little bit of a pay cut for the long term future, then you can't go on offense. Like you need to be able to go on offense, to take advantage of these opportunities. I always kind of word it as like, put yourself in a position to where you're doing what you do because you want to, not because you have to. So live your professional life in that way. And that's how I kind of look at football. Like I want to keep playing, but I want to play because I want to, not because I have to. There's a player in the NFL right now who is similar to me, but he's taking whatever opportunity he, he gets offered right now because of his financial situation. If I was in a worse off financial place, I've gotten calls. Several teams have called me. I could be on a 90 man roster being in mini camp right now instead of on the phone with you. I've turned those calls down because of the financial position I'm in. And I didn't feel like they were a good opportunity for me. There's another player. The next player they called once they got a note from me and that player said, yes, he's probably in a much different financial position than I'm in. So felt like he had to take that job no, no matter what. I want to do the things that I want to do, not like and feel like I have to do. Them. So even if you're extremely happy in your job, putting yourself in a financial place to where like I'm doing this because I really like what I do. And I want to do this for the next 30 years, but like you you have the power over it because I don't need this. I don't have to do it. I, I like it. And I think being able to shift to that mindset and if the, to that perspective is a powerful place. And I think it should be a part of everybody's financial game plan. Yeah, I absolutely completely agree. Devon, as we wrap up today, I want to give you a chance to tell everyone listening where they can go to find out more about what you have going on, where you teach all this stuff, your book, et cetera. Like where do you where do you want people to go? So um yeah, my book is called It All Adds Up, Designing Your Game Plan for Financial Freedom. And uh you can find me all over social media. Just type in my name, Devon Kennard. 
My, my book, you can go to my website, DevonCanard.com, but you can also go to Amazon. There's audiobook. I tried to make this as accessible to everyone out there as possible. So anywhere you would buy a book, you can find it in person or online. And, you know, I'm always trying to push out content, talking about this stuff and very passionate about it. So I appreciate the time, Robert. Uh, I had a blast. Always good. Uh, we might have to make this thing an annual thing uh, now. So hopefully I'll be back next year as well. Yeah, absolutely. We might even have to do it more frequently. Maybe we'll catch up every quarter or six months yeah. or something like that and just just chat. I always enjoy it. I appreciate you taking time out of your day and, uh, and joining me today. So we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Appreciate you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.